This week on Improv, improv, we have an illuminating discussion. <laughs> That's why he couldn't say the website. <laughs> Can I plug my bike race? I'm trying to raise money. Would that be okay with you guys to the podcast? I know nobody's going to actually donate from the podcast, but oh, no, just in case. A bike race? We're not that kind of podcast. You should plug it at the end when we do Does Anyone Have Anything to Plug? All right. That's true. No one's going to stick with us for that long. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Though too. if you want people to hear it, it should probably be in the title of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so some emails went around earlier, and it looks like we've got three things to talk about tonight. We were going to talk about cars and self-driving cars. Self-driving cars. cars. Self-driving the future, cars in particular. Which is today. See Arturo, you have stadiums. Yeah, a little recap on the stadium recap. talk that we had a few weeks back. More stadiums, more stadiums, and then um, and then we'll talk about my uh, NorCal Aid Cycle Challenge. Well, I don't know. That could go anywhere in the show, really. Yeah, that's true. You want to talk about cars? I'm a self-driving car. I don't know. Did you uh, Did you read the article? I did. I mean, I don't know where we could go with that, but I read. Okay, those... forget it. No, I read both. I read no, 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 no. Hear me out. I read both of those like within a day of each other, and I thought they were kind of interesting. One is on self-driving cars and how basically the technology for self-driving cars is here. Um, what's not here is the legal and social infrastructure to allow it. Right. So, like, what happens if your self-driving car goes wrong and you wreck? Um, are people willing to, to trust to step into a vehicle and trust that it will drive them? You know, um, you know, some interesting stuff there. And then the second one was about the that NASCAR study. I mean, like I didn't look at the study, so I don't know if I really want to talk about that one either. But I didn't actually go and look at the research. But it was finding that basically, what what were the details of it? Something like NASCAR people who follow NASCAR are more likely to get into wrecks in the days immediately following. Uh, no, it was like something like five that, days or? after a NASCAR race. Yeah. There's always a significant spike yeah, in traffic go. accidents caused by aggressive driving patterns. Yeah, 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 that's it. And they couldn't really figure out the time lapse, and it wasn't necessarily people who watch NASCAR, but it was a clearly identified pattern. Actually, though, I got to say, John, I think the self-driving cars is actually quite ripe for sociological discussion, because as you pointed out, like, I mean, I was actually amazed reading the article that they were like, they have these cars going up and down the California highways doing like 70, like merging in and out of traffic and like driving right alongside real people driving real cars. Um, but you're right. It's like clearly the technology exists, but there's, we just have no way to conceptualize that from, yeah, like a legal standpoint or even just like uh, a basic sort of use standpoint. And so it'll be a long time before they're actually on the road. Are there any parallels to that? Like, you know, if we're going to take that as the jumping off point, um, are there any other areas of like of technology like that? Well, where I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not answering your question. I'm just going to throw something else out there. I think there's also the idea, though, that in a way, the self-driving car kind of seems inevitable, doesn't it? I mean, it's sort of like a whole McDonaldization rationalization thing that like we always seek to reduce the human component in technology as much as we can to make it as simple as possible. And as the article pointed out, like, you know, we've certainly got to the point in computing technology where it operates far faster than the human brain. So like, why don't we remove what is probably the, uh, 
worst variable in traffic, which is human, human beings. Yeah. yeah. Because, because like, humans uh, like driving. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but I was going to say, one of the things the guy writing the article pointed out was that, uh, you know, as he was driving in it, he couldn't stop himself from thinking, like, man, it would be way better if every car was operating like this. Like, the car refused to speed up a little bit because it would be in somebody's blind spot, you know, and just, like, all this stuff that, again, just, like, totally, I mean, it's just, you know, hyper-rationalization, but of, you know, traffic. Yeah, and then once you, like, have this... and. Invention and it can do these things. It probably can save gas. It can probably reduce fatalities. Like then, it, then that changes the the kind of bar about what is like socially responsible to do and not do. Because if we don't use this technology, like let's say like some states incorporate this technology and you're not allowed to drive cars, and other states you can still drive your car, then that will become a political issue into itself. Of like, you know, why? Why is California the only state that has these self-driving cars? And look at how their fatalities have gone down. And look how irresponsible it would be not to, you know, adopt this technology. Because I mean, that's the that's also follows into the Weberian rationalization that Jesse's talking about. Because it's a slippery slope. Like once you reach a certain threshold of technology, like not applying that technology seems irresponsible. You know. And it's really, I have to point out, it's not, it wouldn't require the state, like, investing in technology. I mean, it's, it's, the technology is within the car, and that's but pretty much. But it's in the roads. At least, at least, at least in California, like, they had a strip of the highway. Because at least the cars that I know of, it has these sensors under the asphalt, and that's how the cars can kind of guide themselves. It follows these things. So the state had to allow whatever company to put in these like special sensors every 50 feet or something like that. And uh, it was a huge expense, but it was under the rationalization that this is the only way we can see if these cars are a viable future. So people are like, yeah, let them put them in the asphalt and see what happens. At least think this article seemed to imply that we are past that point. Yeah. Cause this was in this one, the, the car used the technology that it had, um, Essentially, radar it bounced out yeah. well, it was in the form of lasers that it shot out of itself and used to like identify information. Um, and you know, and there's like even they were talking like there's a programmer riding along, like entering in things that the car would be confused by, like when there's some debris on the road or something. But yeah, so it's this one, at least this model, the technology was all within the car, so it's not even a, a matter of like infrastructure. It's really just a matter. It's again like that's why I think it's interesting because, like John pointed out, it's really sort of more a social legal problem that needs to be overcome instead of some sort of you know great sort of technological hurdle. Yeah, the technology, at least in some form, has been around for in my memory like ten or fifteen years. Because first they started doing this with really high end like Formula One race cars. Everything in those cars is computer controlled. They require a team of engineers to start them and and main, maintain them. But when they started getting really fancy um, suspension systems in streetcars, they basically do a form of what you just talked about, which is evaluating at a certain number of times per second the, the terrain in front of them to adjust the suspension to deal with it. Yeah, and like this one even was able to, you know, once it identified other cars, it could gauge their speed and trajectory and set of things and, you know, uh, really kind of predict where they would be, you know, and that kind of thing and... I mean, yeah, and there's already applications of that that are in cars today unproblematically, like warnings for if you're going too close to a car, going off the road, parking warnings and parking systems and stuff like right. that. Right. So. 
It's also interesting. Yeah, oh, this guy's sorry. I was just going to say, you know, this this paragraph here, he's describing um, like the the advances in these things, saying that, you know, in 2008, he was in a self-driving car that went 25 miles an hour down two closed off blocks. And then describing this one just a few years later. And this is one of Google's cars. So Google is funding this particular car and they're building a bunch of these things. Uh, he's saying now, just a few years later, we're driving close to 70 miles an hour with no human involvement on a busy public highway. Um, this car can do 75 miles an hour. It can track pedestrians and cyclists. It understands traffic lights. It can merge at highway speeds. So, in short, after almost 100 years in which driving has remained essentially unchanged, it has been completely transformed in just half a decade. So, it's it's changed a lot. In the yeah, last and I years. think like this is I think one of the big things. I mean, stuff. that immediately came to my mind was like sort of the legal context, and I think a big part of of a problem will be how. Like how we deal with fault in these kind of things, yeah. because so yeah. much, so much of our traffic world is built around who is at fault, and if there's not like some individual human being at fault, we have our legal system has a very hard time of conceptualizing what you know who, if anyone, is to be punished when there isn't directly a human being you can point to at fault. Well, that's what I was saying about the predictability issue. Is like if this thing is much more efficient, but not perfect i mean any system there's going to be like you know one out of a thousand you know days there's going to be an accident as opposed to one every day like there's going to be a new threshold about like what is reasonable not reasonable anymore like when the system does have a problem like that will be seen as like no longer um acceptable right like oh my god like this system sucks because it has an accident every thousand days and then, like, who's who's responsible for it, right? Like, the driver or the people who made the computer system or, you know, like, it just shifts the blame. Or I guess here you don't really know who you would blame in those situations. But you would also have just a different, um, I don't know, threshold of what is acceptable and not acceptable because we have the ability now to make things more predictable. Right. Yeah, it's the whole thing, like, how people feel... Say, driving is dangerous, right? It's one of the riskier things we do every day. We get in the car, we get on the highway, and we drive, and it's dangerous. It's risky, but we feel like we're in control. Yeah, you know. And on the other hand, you have people who will drive all day long, drive all over the place, all over town, take long road trips, but they're petrified of flying. Yeah. you know, which is relatively speaking very safe, but because they have no control over it, and it's you know kind of creepy, Uber in the sky or whatever. I don't know it scares the crap out of people. Then people have these horrible fears of flying and they're perfectly okay. You know, getting on the highway with a bunch of idiots who don't know how to drive. Right. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. So, so if you do have a self-driving car that, like you said, say it's, say it's accident rate is 10 times better than what humans would be. There's still going to be accidents. There are still going to be mistakes. And are people going to be able to accept that? Or are they going to be more scared of those than they were the old-fashioned cars that we drove I think ourselves? they'll be more scared of those. Because imagine how horrifying it would be to get into a car accident in self-driving cars. If you know what's happening, you're probably going to try and do something to prevent it. And maybe there's you'll either make it worse or you won't be able to do anything. And I think that's more See, that's unsettling was- for people than doing it of their own volition or their own stupidity. I was going to say, I imagine whenever these start to become commercially available, the, at least the first couple generations will have to have some sort of like very immediate human override system, you know, that like people can immediately jump in, even though 
it, that would probably the cause way, more like, accidents. I was going to say, yeah, even though it's yeah. probably worse if you try to jump in in that situation because it's probably <laughs> going to do a better job than you. But, you know, people will just, uh, yeah, I see people having a very hard time giving that up. And there'll also be a dedicated subculture that's into hacking and modifying these things because that happens with any technology. So it's what kind of way can I mess with the computer programming to do something that the car isn't supposed to do? Yeah, talk about talk about dangerous viruses yeah. and stuff. And viruses are just like you know. forcing the suspension to go out at certain times so you can do a donut or something like that. It could be anything. Yeah. And not to mention the sort of uh like very much encroachment of the security state you could see coming along with it because if you have self-driving cars then you know program it not to be able to drive more than you know 80 miles an hour you know there's no speed limit that high you never need to go you know like those kind of report its location at all times yeah and you could very much see how you could start to build a lot of traffic laws into cars um for you know good and ill and that's what i said before people like driving cars and car culture represent an enormous amount of the ideology of personal freedom in the country (laughs) and people aren't going to be a lot of people aren't going to be happy with having other people, a corporation, whatever it is, controlling them on the road, even if it is safer. Because we already like doing things that the data says are unsafe. Though, to be fair, at one point in time, you know, the horse was also a great symbol of American, you know, sort of rugged individualism as well. Um, But that has definitely been reduced to more of a niche spot. Well, but the, I guess that's the question is, will there still be cars, though, right? So you can imagine a future where there are certain people that still have cars and there's still a way to get a driver's license, but it's a much, you know, it's it's something... Oh, sure, there'll be, like, driving doing. tracks, you and, know, or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Special places that you have to go to use it like, or, you know... <laughs> this is like a... Certain yeah, roads where it's not a allowed. A certain kind of vision of the future that you saw in a lot of 70s sci-fi. <laughs> Where there's an elite class that now. gets to do all these things that people used to be able to do. Oh no, I, I don't just know. Want that. To know I mean, my car will fold up into a suitcase. I, I don't mean it in some sort of weird dystopian kind of thing. I just mean there would <laughs> totally be, you know, there are just like there are still people who like have horses for fun just because they like riding horses around, even though it's not a particularly like <laughs> viable mode of transportation for most people. You know, there hey, are people. Gas prices are going up. Yeah, there will be people who have I'm cars. John. Out, I like riding you know. horses around. So I mean, you already have rich people yeah, but, buying I mean, supercars and going to buying time on a racetrack. It'll just be an extreme version of that, or a widespread version of that. If you think about it from the point of view of like public transportation or something, though, um, it makes a lot of sense because you know public transportation works really well, but you know it, it obviously has its downsides. It's you know when you have sprawled large metropolitan areas, you can't run a train or a bus to every corner you know you can't match every the flexibility that everyone gets with cars obviously that's why people love their cars you know and you can imagine something like um oh what are those called zip cars Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you know you can basically like get on your phone reserve a zip car and it'll show you where it is you walk the zip car and you get it like in the future you will reserve a zip car and it will drive one to you (laughs) you will get in and it will take you where you want to go and then you will get out, and then that zip car will be, you know, reassigned to someone else nearby. It'll be a, or, a great thing know. for drunk driving. Oh, totally. Exactly. They, yep. This is kind of Hold related, on. but okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, don't wanna... I just wanted to say really quickly, I really hope somebody keeps an audio sample of Chris saying, it'll be a great thing for drunk driving. 
Uh, out of context, that's one of my favorite quotes ever on this podcast. Sorry. Go ahead, Arturo. Well, this is it's kind of a j- tangent, but somewhat related when you guys are talking about, like, you know, the rich activities that the people get to do right now with cars. And I remember watching this documentary about Brazilian upper class and how there's a real concern about carjackings there. And, you know, you can invest like $100,000 into making your car bulletproof and whatnot. And in this documentary, they're talking about how one of the favorite activities of the rich in Brazil sometimes is they rent these cars to, you know, run in a racetrack, but it's under the guise of getting uh, training for like invading hijacked and basically like you get a car and you drive around a racetrack and you have another car which is like shooting paint guns at you and you're <laughs> supposed to be like dodging the the paint guns and oh then they interview, they interview this expert they're like yeah anytime you have amateurs driving 100 miles per hour on a racetrack dodging another car shooting paintballs is like the most dangerous thing you could possibly think of that's being done in the kind of name of keeping yourself safe. And but also awesome. Video. Super yeah, awesome. I, I do have a new dream in life, so <laughs> we've got that. Because it's like, you can't really dodge bullets. I mean, like... Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, that's probably your worst strategy if somebody's shooting at you while you're driving is to think, well, maybe if I drive really erratically, I can kind of drive in between the bullets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, I thought that would be kind of funny uh, not to take it to a different topic. Yeah, but think if both of those cars were self-driving. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Then suddenly, w- Would you have human shooters or robot shooters? <laughs> well, again, difference. at first human shooters, but as the technology comes along, I mean, robots, obviously. But I think this is a case, you know, I mean, to try to, um, I don't know broaden the discussion a little bit like this is not i didn't mean that in like a condescending way i mean maybe a little bit um this is like not an unusual situation where look at um um medicine and like uh the kinds of like biomedical research that's being done on or or like in the world of entertainment and media and stuff where the technology always outpaces the social and legal conventions and the social conventions usually catch up first too you know um, people will be used to driving self-driving cars and want to have them before we've figured out the legal apparatus for dealing with them properly. I don't know, know, though. Can that happen? Um, I mean, can't how how could people, I guess I should say, get used to driving self-driving cars before the legal apparatus happens up to it? Uh, rich people with hobbies, you know, and then they'll get in car wrecks. <laughs> and then we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, but if it's only available to a few... No, I'm just kind of like... I don't quite think it can work that way because if it's still, if it's only the province of a few wealthy people who can afford it, it's not going to be like some great consumer demand or, you know, some sort of getting used to it. Like, I feel like the, the legal has to come pretty quickly for it to adapt or for it to become viable. I could totally imagine though, a sociologist in 20 years in the future writing a paper about the disproportional deaths caused by people who drive cars as opposed to the elite that can have these robot cars, you know, and that this becomes a new disparity in highway deaths. And, you know, there should be more interventions to make access to cars, robot cars cheaper and, you know, something that everybody can afford because the risks of dying in the highway is disproportional to your, 
you know, income bracket. And, you know, it becomes a new politics of risk. And I think that's like the thing that's always kind of crazy with any medical advancement or anything that extends your life or decreases your risk of dying. Like the upper class always can have access to that first and eventually a new politics of whether that's okay or not and the disparities that fall, flow from that becomes a political issue, you know, down the road. Well, here's that your stimulus sense. package. Let's get Detroit building some self-driving cars. <laughs> Kill two birds yeah. with one stone. Well, there was that issue with the Volt, the Chevy Volt, and the you know how um, they're saying right. that in crash tests, like the batteries caught on fire, and then there was a report by some governmental agency that said, "Yeah, it's true. You know, sometimes cars catch on fire because of the battery, but." To be fair, most cars that run on gasoline also explode after a car accident. So <laughs> it's like if you take that into account, you know, Chevy Volts probably aren't any more dangerous than your conventional car. But because it has this kind of futuristic label to it, the risk of it catching on fire seems really unacceptable. And of course it is if, you know, you're in that car. I'm sure that would be seemed seem as unacceptable, to, you know, for you. But, uh, you know, the different... Uh, I don't know, different thresholds about what is or what is not acceptable is always shifting. Right. On the topic of cars, I've recently stopped uh, driving a car and, and riding my bike more often these days. Anyway, so I'm doing this bike race uh, for – it's called North Cal AIDS Challenge, which mm-hmm. is a 330-mile bike race over four days in May. And we're raising money for a set of community-based organizations that work with uh, people with AIDS and HIV in Sacramento. And it's a bunch of these nonprofit organizations that offer either free or low-cost medical services. And uh, actually, it's kind of related to our um, stadium discussion, you know, as budget cuts are occurring everywhere. It's a good uh, chance to raise money for some vital non-stadium things in Sacramento. And uh, I've pledged to raise $1,500. And uh, this is actually my first time I'm doing one of these charity events. I don't know if you guys have done them before. It feels a little bit self-righteous, but I actually have to raise $1,500 because <laughs> otherwise I have to pay $1,500. So yeah, I'm um, trying to capitalize on the self-righteousness and hope that people can donate maybe $5 or $2. I've raised uh, $150, so I'm a tenth of the way there. But, so Arturo, you know, people- where, could we, where could we go to donate to this worthwhile charitable cause? Well, there is a link that will be on um, on the improv webpage. Uh, just click there. You go to my little profile and little blurb about what I just said, and you can just donate right there. Either with uh, you can write us a check, or you can just do it through PayPal, and uh, it'd be great. Uh, really yeah, I'm gonna go donate right now. Oh, sweet! You can go to Bitly, so bit.ly/arturobikes. Cool. Again, that's bit.ly/arturobikes. Arturo, you say it. I, I can't. I'm going to screw he it can, up. He can barely say the societypages.org. Come on. Yeah, I always screw it up. Like, dot org slash com something. HTTP slash... dot org slash com. <laughs> yeah.
Oh, I got a, uh, I got a recap of an issue that we discussed a few weeks ago about stadiums. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking about stadiums and the eco- economics of stadiums, and I mentioned that here in Sacramento, that's always an issue that's coming up. And like the big news that I'm sure nobody else has heard, but here in Sacramento is that the city has come up with a plan to build a new stadium for the Sacramento Kings. And uh, the mayor is all excited, and tomorrow the city council is going to vote on this plan. And basically, like the backdrop is that the Kings have always talked about how they're thinking about moving out of Sacramento because the stadium here sucks, which it does, but the team sucks. Um, and they have said, listen, if we can get a new stadium, we can bring in new talent and we can actually make this, you know, small market area profitable if we at least had a decent stadium. And so this discussion of stadium has been going around for 10 years. And last year, the owner said, listen, we're tired of it. We're going to just move to Anaheim. And, um, that caused a bunch of people to get up and up, up in arms here in Sacramento and, these campaigns to raise money for this for the stadium started and so the nba intervened and said listen we'll give sacramento one more year to figure out how to build the stadium and uh last monday the the mayor which ironically was a king's basketball player about 10 years ago uh announced that he's come up with a solution with the team's owners and which is um this plan to build a new stadium downtown and, of course, Sacramento is broke. And the question that I thought would be interesting is, like, well, how are we going to pay for this? And uh, I was talking to somebody about this uh, a few days ago when I was out, and I got called a hater uh, because I thought the, the the financing of the stadium seemed a, a bit weird because, A, this, this franchise has a, a $75 million loan that it got from the city about 10 years ago that it hasn't ever paid off. So I think that's that's kind of problematic. And so the city said they're going to pay for like two-thirds of this new stadium. And how they're going to do that is that the mayor's plan is to privatize the parking meters in all of Sacramento for oh, the next of course. Of course. For, the, for the next 25 years. And basically the parking meters and the parking ramps bring in about $10 million a year. And some um, private company has offered Sacramento like $100 million to own the parking meters for the next 25 years. And they would use that $100 million. (laughs) Of course. They're going to use the $100 million to put a down payment on on the stadium. And then the city's going to figure out some other way to do it. So automatically, I didn't like the plan because the city's not only broke, now it's going to like shoot itself in the foot by cutting out this revenue of $10 million a year uh, that somehow it's going to make up with a new stadium and, you know, new games and whatnot. And then the mayor's like, but don't worry, you know, the Kings are also fronting the bill a little bit because they've guaranteed to pay $75 million of the the costs. And they promised to pay back the loan that we gave them 10 years ago. (laughs) Exactly. And then there was an article in the Sacramento Bee about looking to the finances of the, the Maloof brothers who own the team and, you know, they basically said these guys don't have $75 million to put down anywhere. And, you know, once you start building the stadium, it's not like if they don't come up with their $75 million that we'll stop building the stadium or if we pay for the whole thing, it's not like we won't let the Kings play. Right. And uh, it's just, it's just, it just seems kind of crazy to me that this is a priority in Sacramento, right? And so when I was bringing this up, and I like the Kings, you know, like this guy was just like, you know, why do you hate Sacramento? 
why do you hate the Kings so much? Don't you see it would be so great if we built this stadium? And, like, just the rationality of, like, you know, the finances of this. I mean, doesn't it seem crazy to you to privatize? It's, it's junky logic, man. I mean, it's it's like you said, they're shooting themselves in the foot, you know? I mean, under what, you know, in what way does it make logical sense to, like, sell all of that stuff for less than half of its projected revenue, say you could put a down payment <laughs> on a stadium that every other stadium has clearly established will not be a net benefit or bring you any profit on the premise that they'll repay a loan they took out a decade ago and haven't paid back. That's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How is this? How is the... how? I just, it, you know, I'm so close to an aneurysm, just trying to, to justify like how, and you know, I mean, just every time I feel like, well, anybody I talk to this think I'm think just think I'm crazy. I'm like, this is awesome. We finally got this stadium. We're not going to lose the Sacramento Kings. And it's just like, I just feel like we have no leverage with this franchise. And oh, if no. we lose them, we lose them. But like, it's not like success when they go and they're going to pay that loan back that they haven't paid yet. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, that just makes any sense at all so, and this well, whole the same, so, the same thing's going on here because the governor Dayton finally came out with a plan that he and the Vikings agree on and it's coming to the Minneapolis City Council for a vote fairly soon but it was a great victory because it was announced the Vikings would pay for somewhere over 50% of the stadium so they will nearly pay for half of this new stadium they do not need. I mean, and that's being trumpeted as like the major victory. Wow. So here's a, the the economic impact on a city of having a major, you know, professional sports team. Um I, I imagine there's research on this, and I imagine there's probably also research on what happens when teams leave, right? So what is this actual negative horrible impact on sacramento if the kings leave right or on minnesota if you know the twins leave or vikings leave or whatever right like what are what is the actual cost because teams leave so we have lots of examples of this happening so right is there research on this do you that's a good question i mean we discussed some research last time of cities that build new stadiums for kind of niche events whether it's like the olympics or like the world cup or the where the super bowl was done uh, indianapolis and i was listening to npr and they had a bunch of economists they're saying you know this makes no economic sense i mean the city will lose 200 million dollars and by the way the stadium that they knocked down to build the super bowl stadium they're still paying off that they still have another 60 million dollars to pay off on that stadium and delightful you know there will be no there's no chance in hell that you know they'll come out positive but on a political sense the mayor wins because they brought the super bowl to indianapolis but there's no way that that weekend of hotels being filled is going to pay off you know essentially a debt that will take indianapolis 50 years to pay off but that's for like yeah. unique events. I don't know about the economics of yeah, the that's, franchise. That's different, you know, because like I was listening when the the NBA strike, or I don't know what he, I don't even remember what did they actually ever did they lose? Did they start late? I clearly don't follow sports. Yeah. Yes, they're having an abbreviation. Yes, season. but they were you know talking to local business owners, like you know people who own bars in town, talking about how you know business was down a lot and they lost such and such amount of money every night that the team would have been playing. You know, 
and like they could show this like i uh sure yeah but i mean the thing is it's that it's certainly like sports bars and restaurants within walking distance of the venue get down and and probably hotels as well but those numbers especially when you then talk about the tax returns on those numbers probably do not add up to the hundreds of millions that have been shelled out in tax dollars at least until a very very long time down the road if ever and i'm assuming probably not ever plus with newer deals where they raise local sales taxes to pay for the stadium then you know it kind of cancels everything out well and not to mention the teams often then get sweetheart tax deals and things like that well right, yeah. you know into their existence so the mayor of Sacramento is Kevin Johnson? Yeah. KJ? Yeah. <laughs> KJ. Yeah. Did he play for the Kings? It, I, he played for the Suns. He I don't did. know if he ever played for the Kings, did he? I thought he played for the Kings for at least a year or two. Um, he might have to, like... to like pay off the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, pay for, I'll play for free for a year, I promise. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much value Kevin Johnson brings these days to a basketball team from a player. He uh, played for the Cavaliers and the Suns, yeah, but not the Kings. Makes me feel old. He probably doesn't bring much value. I've met him a couple times because he comes to the farmers market. Uh, he's a nice guy. I, I don't want to say he's a competent mayor by any stretch of imagination, <laughs> but I, he's a nice guy and he likes organic organic vegetables. I mean, uh, so. <laughs> He, he's so got my wash. <laughs> yeah. He's incompetent, <laughs> but he supports local farmers. So, yeah, yeah you give a little. He's a nice little. guy. But this is like, man, like they've closed. I mean, they already said they're going to close every pool in, in Sacramento for the summer. And people are raising money to like open those pools. And I'm just like thinking like when they start firing police officers or, you know, the fire department because the city can't pay for it. It's just going to be. Just, and it's going to be really, I don't know. I'm going to be very angry because it just no. seems like not the reasonable thing to do for a mayor. It's like, we're just going to cut this $10 million. I mean, he was saying that the deal is that the city gets to recoup some dollars during game nights. Like, the parking meters have to pay towards the city. But that's just offsetting the costs that you're losing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to be a net gain of any sorts. Um, so... That's my it's rant. kind of, you know, it's funny. At the same time, my undergrad institution um, is undergoing some pretty, uh, well, supposedly a budget crisis. I never quite trust those because they never show you the numbers when they say a crisis. Um, but it's doing, it's, it's doing a similar thing as it sounds like Sacramento is doing in that it's, it's essentially like destroying the university in an attempt to balance the budget. Um, because like my arts it was like the education school in Iowa. And a big part of it was we had this uh, laboratory school, a K through 12 where people would like learn how to teach and test teaching theories and things like that. And to like offset the budget, they're shutting that down and like ending it after all of these years, which was like the one thing that uh, school really had to set it apart. And now they've announced on top of that, they're going to start cutting majors by those who produce the least graduates. So like physics is up on the chopping block. (laughs) Physics, you know, those really sort of esoteric niche disciplines that we don't really need to understand that don't impact any fields like physics. So apparently the solution to their budget crisis is to no longer be a university uh, because that's apparently too difficult to balance the budget. But uh, it's amazing how incredibly short sighted people like become in the name of 
whether it's like the civic pride of getting the Sacramento Kings or some sort of weird budget balancing thing. Yeah, there's actually a really good uh, This American Life episode this week uh, about cities that have privatized. So what? Of course, it just wouldn't be a improv without. Never mind. Well, this American Live NPR, but like you guys you listening to some NPR podcast. <laughs> Listen to Soch Improv, where we discuss other more insightful podcasts for you. No, it's a really good podcast. It's about all these cities that have privatized aspects of their social services or public services, you know, and whether it be like the trash or the park services, and you know, they kind of get at these issues. And one of the things that's interesting that Jesse just said, it's like it's this concern about the budget and at the end of the day it's like they talked to one guy who essentially was working for the city for 20 years for the public works department he was making a really good living and had like 10 raises in the last 10 years and you know probably was making too much money to a certain degree his department got privatized and this new company came in and he's like it's not so bad i mean i'm making a little less my pension totally sucks but by all accounts, the city hasn't saved a single dime by doing this. Um, it's just they will save – they will project to save money 20 years down the line when this guy retires because his pension sucks. But for right now, you know, doesn't save anything. This for-profit company comes in and makes a profit, um, but people feel better about the budget you know, because it's you – know, these public sector unions are the ones that are zapping you know, these budgets and so forth. And I think that's – that's part of it. So right. the whole well, privatization. The exact, I mean, that's the exact same thing as the stadium, right? It's just finding a way to hand over large sums of public money to private entities for basically no return. Yeah. Yeah. And letting some private company to do it, you know, and I mean, we'll have parking meters and, you know, probably will be reasonable and there'll be nice parking meters at that. But, you know, 25 years, man, that's, that just seems so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it says that Kevin Johnson is married to Michelle Ree, which is very interesting. Who's Michelle Ree? She is one of the superstars of the educational world who is trying to lead charter schools. Oh, this thing with the Washington D.C. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Surprising. Power, power, a couple right there. Yeah. Well, I wasn't in Sacramento when Kevin Johnson was running for mayor, but he was running against incumbent of ten years, and they had all these like uh, scheduled debates uh, that he wasn't showing up to. Like they would schedule it, and they have the cameras there, and then he wouldn't show up. And then they found out the reason he wasn't showing up is because some of these debates were scheduled at high schools, and legally he's not allowed to be within two hundred feet of public schools because i guess yes he he's a sex offender of some sorts or 10 years ago or 20 years ago who is this he, you know <laughs> kevin johnson during the summer of 1995 a 16 year old girl alleged that johnson had groped her so i believe that's where oh there's there's a bunch of stuff here about high schools yeah so, <laughs> so, wow and you think that would and kill he won the election <laughs> yeah with no experience like of doing anything beyond basketball and he was also a business person and um you know he beat the incumbent even with like that on his record they must have ran like he must have ran one heck of a campaign i mean that's (laughs) sorry i can't come to the debate i can't go to high schools because i'm a sex offender (laughs) vote for me like that's you know in some ways it's kind of heartwarming that he was able to be elected yeah 
Well, because he was running on, I'm going to bring, going to bring a new stadium to Sacramento. I mean, that was one of his main messages, and I'm going to keep the Kings here, and that's what resonated with people. Yeah, and, right. yeah, that, that's how it works. And he is delivering the uh, democratic mandate of the people, I guess. Yeah, democracy at work. I was guessing, what are people going to learn? Democracy just does not work. But again, he's a nice guy. You know, I <laughs> talked to him about some organic greens that I was buying, and, you know, he likes no, to we talk. No, you've, you've clearly established that you and Kevin Johnson are best friends. But <laughs> way to catch the drive. So me and my friend Kevin Johnson and I were talking about some organic greens the other day. And I said, hey, KJ, how is the educational policy discussions at home? <laughs> So, I think we're pretty good, huh? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what you think. Email podcast at thesocietypages.org. Now it's time for (laughs) So, my recommendation will be for... Elite Squad 2 just came out in uh, English subtitles, which is the sequel to the Brazilian movie called Elite Squad. And Elite Squad uh, it was a movie that was based on kind of an autobiography of a police officer who worked in this elite police squad in Rio de Janeiro. And it kind of covers, I don't know, the kind of fascist uh, system of operating an elite squad in kind of an urban context of Rio de Janeiro. And the second movie is about kind of the politics of it and how, you know, this elite squad occurs within the broader context, as sociologists like to say, of uh, Rio's uh, political machine, essentially. And the movie's great. It was like the best, I think it's like the most highest grossing Brazilian film of all time. And uh, I just watched it on the plane actually the other day. Super violent, but pretty interesting it's uh it's not you know since it's a sequel it's not following the autobiography of this guy anymore but it's inspired by real events and one of the things that's really interesting is because the police were so effective in eradicating a lot of the gangs and some of the slums in Rio what happened afterwards is that the police force the kind of regular police force went in and started taking over all all, all sorts of illicit activities uh so they started taking over the prostitution networks and all the other things that gangs were doing now are being operated by the local police and so it's kind of uh, an interesting take on policing so highly recommend it's violent uh, perfect for a criminology class sounds like you've used the first movie for your classes right jesse I have. You know, I, I would also throw out to listeners, if you, you go ahead and watch that, pretty good chance we'll be talking about it on an upcoming podcast. So oh, yeah, that's right. Follow yeah, along we might at home. A little re- movie review. Anyway, that's my recommendation of the week. Is it like a Brazilian version of The Wire? <laughs> it is. It is. If you get The Wire, you will get Elite Squad 2. Uh-huh. You, did- you know, no, no good guys, no bad guys. Everybody's corrupt. Everybody's innocent. Everybody's a victim. That kind of a, a genre. Oh, and there's got this great... Uh, I mean, one of the characters is an academic, and it, uh, both movies have like this critical perspective on academics who love to leftist academics of all academics. And there's an interesting kind of counter narrative about the role of academics uh, in discussing social problems. And you know, I mean, it, it it paints a critical light on academia in a way. So interesting stuff there. 
All right. All right. So I was looking at my uh, my uh, list of interesting things I read this week here, and and the one that stuck out to me that I thought sociologists might like that's about politics. Basically, it's uh, it's by Ezra Klein, who's a political blogger, columnist, I think, for the Washington Post. And he wrote a review of two books for the New York Review of Books. First is uh, Lawrence Lessig's book. Everyone knows who Lawrence Lessig is, right? Uh, Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It. And then a second book, uh, Jack Abramoff's book. Uh, so Capital Punishment, The Hard Truth About Washington Corruption from America's Most Notorious Lobbyist. Um, but it's interesting because the point he ends up making is that uh, it's not all about money. And it's actually kind of a very sociological point, too, because looking at how Abramoff talks about how he did what he did and how it's it's all about building relationships and putting, you know, it's not like uh, this, this scenario of lobbyists going to politicians and saying, here, have a bunch of money, vote this way. And the politician is thinking, oh, but I don't really want to vote that way. But because you gave me a bunch of money, I will. This kind of like cartoon view of how corruption works. When in fact, it's it's different than that. Because what you really have are these lobbyists that become like your friends. Like, they're always there for you. They do research for you. They, they you know, you do, you have social engagements with them. You know, like lobbyists write a bunch of legislation, you know. Um, and lobbyists also hire former staffers from your office and you know former politicians that you know obviously go you know do do and do these things and it becomes all about the social networks where these lobbyists aren't necessarily it's you know it's not just purely about buying votes but basically embedding our representatives in systems of you know, in social networks that make doing what the lobbyists want seem natural and right and friendly and good, you know? And, and it's also about how, you know, a lot of times it's, it's like with ideological companions too, you know, it's not like big businesses necessarily go to, uh, you know, their ideological opponents in Congress and lobby them. They go to their, their, their champions, you know? So if you want, uh, tax cuts and reg- regulations, you know, dismantled for a particular industry, you know, you go to the, the Republicans that stand for this thing, that campaigned on it, and, you know, you develop relationships with them. You, you hire some of their former staffers. You woo them. You know, you, you get to know them over the course of many years. And then that's a very different kind of influence than the sort of outright vote buying that you kind of imagine. Um, so anyway, it's a good read because it sort of looks at the Abramoff book and then looks at Lessig, who's kind of saying it's money, but not really, you know, um, I don't know. I, it's an interesting read. So like I said, it's kind of a kind of, I, th- I think kind of a sociological take on the issue of corruption in politics. Cause it's sort of taking a step back from, uh, a sort of crude follow the money. It's all about the money kind of view and saying, no, it's really, it's much deeper than that. Um, so cool. People might like to read that. Not to cross-promote or self-promote too much, but if you're familiar with the Office Hours podcast, the societypages.org slash Office Hours, we're trotting out a new feature this week called Drop-Ins, which are similar to our Office Hours podcast in that they're talking to uh, the movers and shakers of our social world, um, but are much faster. They'll tend to be probably in the 5, 10, 15-minute range, uh, just kind of giving you a quick hit of you know a recent study or really interesting book or, or commentary on a you know, contemporary 
contemporary topic. So uh, we're just launching that this week, and they should be up ASAP. I, I thought it was pretty good, Jesse. It's uh, I like the discussion on the propensity score matching at the end that you guys had, and actually, it's pretty short. I, no, I, I actually liked it. The whole like you know, uh, time spent in prison does it is it as effective as not spending time in prison? I mean. I'm not doing yeah. justice to the argument. Don't blow it for all the listeners yeah. that are scrambling on their computers right now to go download it. Yeah, exactly. It was it was good though. Thank you. Let's see, in case you've had enough sociology and don't want to deal with that, a couple other podcasts that you might well, actually one other podcast that you might be interested in listening to. If you like comedy, uh one of the best comedy I podcasts going on right now is uh it's called Super Ego. It's all improvised. They have excellent guest stars who contribute their own improvisations, but it's the production values are incredible. Each episode is about half an hour. They they add music, they do voices. They the production values are really good. It's always enjoyable. So uh, so I recommend that. Also uh, another thing I could recommend if I have the time. Two of my favorite rappers from the Minneapolis scene, Brother Ali and I Self Divine, have both put out free mixtapes. Brother Ali has a one that's all about it's it's love songs basically. Uh, I Self Divine has three or four mixtapes coming out in support of his album that's going to drop later in the spring. You can get them all at rhymesayers.com. They're worth checking out. Brother Ali. Yeah, I just bought two of his albums, so I hope it's not one of the albums that's now free. No, totally suck. <laughs> no, it, it just came out last week, so I think you're safe. Oh, okay. Uh, it's just a seven-song EP. Really nice production. The I Self, If people haven't heard I Self, he's a, a long-time veteran of the hip hop underground hip-hop scene. Always has good stuff to say, so. Cool. Hey, John, how can we find uh, the social improv in the society pages now? You don't have a drop-down menu. It's still there. No, it's not. Oh, not from the homepage. Yeah. You have, well... It's, you got to go to community page. Yeah, it's in, yeah, it's it's on the homepage. It's right. Well, unless we actually put out recent episodes, then it's a little uh, recent thing. You can hit us up at the societypages.org, Find us under community pages. Then click on social impro- sociology improv. You can follow or, us at Twitter, or you can call us right six one two four two four A G I L. Leave some comments. Talk to us on Twitter at sociology improv. We'd like to hear what you think. What you want us to talk about in the future, what you hate about us, what you want to recommend. You can say that you want to be on the show, we'll gladly have you. It's all for you. <laughs> now we're just sounding desperate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs>